In the 2002 SDCF symposium entitled Getting Hired, a team of successful directors and producers hold a candid discussion about the realities of hiring for the musical theater. The following program is a recording of the conversation that took place. Hello, I'm SDC Director Choreographer Edie Cowan, and you are listening to Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the SDCF and the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. So today, what we want to talk about, my friends, is how do directors get hired? And once they are hired, how do they begin to forge a relationship with the producer? What's the essence of that relationship? And how does the hiring process and that relationship differ in the commercial theater and in the not-for-profit theater? So, Sue, would you start us off? And we don't have long, so let everybody just get in there and say what we have to say so we'll have some time for questions. Okay. Well, uh, I represent the Institutional Theater. Uh, we produce at the good speed six shows a year. Three of them usually are new, sometimes four. Uh, we're, we're working with live authors, dead authors, estates, any number of things. Um, there are so many things that go into hiring decisions, and every single project is different. The new projects are, are significantly different from the revivals in that many times, by the time they come to be produced in our second stage, the authors and the director have already forged a relationship. Um, we look on those as a, as a welcome opportunity often to work with new directors with whom we've never had the opportunity to work before. Uh, sometimes projects will, be, will get involved in and they don't have directors attached then put my thinking cap on and think about the play, and I'll, I'll, I refer to plays, they're always musicals where we come from. Uh, think about the plays, who might be right, think about the authors, who might be a good fit. It's always a challenge. Uh, we uh, 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 Very often I'll come up with a few names, I'll, I'll, I'll forge some, some introductions, sometimes those are successful and sometimes they're not. Uh, sometimes authors come to me with I, what I think are fairly unrealistic expectations for the dreaded, we said we we're going to really, you know, talk about this with the dreaded A-list, uh, which is um, fine. I think it's great to have an A-list, but very often when you're developing a new piece and you're working in a town, you can't always get access to that. And I happen to know there are a lot of very fine directors and choreographers out there who just haven't done enough work to be seen to make some kind of an A-list. So we, 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 we run those, those um, uh, uh, we do those kinds of things. Um, a very satisfactory uh, relationship uh, developed for us, and you heard, you met Gabe Barry, you heard of, uh, it was a terrific relationship. Gabe started with us as a, as a performer. And uh, he and Andrew, Andrew was the assistant music director, Gabe was an actor in the show, they put on a piece that we liked enough to ultimately produce on our second stage. And that was the first time we got to work with Gabe as a director. Enjoyed the experience enormously. 
and asked him to take on Sweeney Todd on our main stage. And it was a spectacular production, one of the finest things we've ever done. And we've worked on several shows since then, and I hope continue to. I mean, those kinds of relationships institutionally are ideal, uh, because, they, they, because the, the director is vested in the institution, and the institution is vested in the director. I could go on and on, but we got a lot Marty, of Marty, why don't you can. talk to us about the commercial arena? Well, I, you know, I think, I, thinking about this panel, I think the big question is how do you break through? How do you get attention? And how do you, uh, how do you get on everybody's radar screen? And I think what you've got to do is look at a few careers of people who have managed to do that. And um, I think there's two models. There's, you know, if you look at Scott Ellis's career, Scott was a director, at, uh, was an actor, and wanted to direct, and with a group of friends, he had a new approach to Florida Redmans. Uh, and I think you've got to find the project that is going to get some attention and find a way to put it together and a place to, a place to put it together. Um, and you can't, you know, if you do a production of the pajama game, you're not going to get a lot of attention. I mean, you've got to find something that's going to attract everybody's attention, something that's going to make everybody sit up and say, it's time to take another look at this. Uh, so Scott did a little production of Florida the Red Menace. He did a number of readings in town. Finally got it on Broadway, commercial, uh, uh, not-for-profit production. And everybody went down and saw it. And, uh, and his career started going. Walter Bobby was also an actor and wanted to direct. Uh, he started working with Chris Durang on a series of his plays. Did it at ELT, then I think it got picked up and went to Manhattan Theater Club. Um, and again, it was an interesting project, and it's how his career took off. Uh, the other model, which, which I think is effective and is a great experience, is to work as an assistant to a terrific director. Uh, we had a young kid in Canada named Stafford Arima, and uh, he met with Hal Prince, and Hal was incredibly impressed with him. And he was Hal's assistant on Showboat, and then he was Galati's, Frank Galati's assistant on Ragtime. And uh, then he went off and directed the non-union tour of Ragtime, and now he's really starting to get work. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times now, because shows are done in so many different uh, productions and on so many different levels, that if you're there in the beginning as somebody's assistant and it goes on to the uh, CLOs and to the non-union tour and everything, you can get to direct that production. And that's the way you get attention to yourself. Good, thanks. David, why don't you tell us as a director? Uh, yeah, I was sort of thinking about it, and, and, and those of you who are directors of choreographers probably know that early on there's this hideous catch-22, which is you can't get hired because you don't have any credits. So you don't get any credits, so you can't get hired because you don't have any credits. And you sort of wonder, how, I'm sort of spinning my wheels, and how do I get how do I get out of that kind of strange rut? Because you can't just sort of wake up one day and say, I'm a director. An actor can actually just show up in an audition and do a great job, and get a job. Um, you can talk the talk, but most producers, and I think you'd all agree, talking the talk isn't walking the walk. So you really need to be seen. And I, I was struck by what Marty said, and I think it has to do with figuring out who you are as a director and finding a way to do that, rather than waiting around for uh, someone to offer you something that seems right. I mean, hearing the idea of Scott having taken Flora, which was a show that I don't think was taken all that seriously, it was kind of forgotten, and saying, this show is valuable, this show has something to say, I want to do it. I think that's the way to get started. I mean, I think you start doing readings, you start talking to people, you start 
But when you get in the door, and when you sort of have an opportunity to do something, you have to sort of have a point of view. Um, and you have to say, I mean, I know Todd calls me occasionally and says, you know, what, 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 what are you interested in doing? And the worst thing is if you don't really know, um, because, you know, that question doesn't come up that often. So what I do, I'm always, I go to drama bookshop and I just browse through, you know, plays. And I look, uh, you know, Patty Chatsky, Patty Chatsky, I wonder if he has anything that's worth reviving. Uh, you know, I, 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 I look through all the musicals and I see what, I mean, now almost everything has been redone. I mean, Marty said, oh, the pajama game, but, you know, I would think a kind of an interesting new point of view about the pajama game would be, would get a lot of attention. So it really depends on you and not the project. So I think it has to do with having sort of in your pocket a bunch of things that you want to do so that you can kind of say, this is who I am, this is what I want to do. And then just find a way to do it, you know, by sending resumes out to small theaters, resident theaters. There's theaters all over the country that as Sue was saying, you know, they might want what would be considered the A-list, but they're not going to get what is considered the A-list, and they're going to move to the B, the C, the D, and then that last index card. And the, the thing to do is sort of get your name out there, get something. Once you get something, invite people to see it. So I guess that's about it. It's not, I mean, it, it's tricky, but you got to sort of start small and then invite people. All right, so Todd, how do you hire um, I don't really know if I have a lot to add to what's been said. I mean, I think it's um, the human nature is such that you tend to go back to the people that you have relationships with whose work you like, uh, both because you have a degree of confidence in them and because, frankly, part of the fun of the job is, is having a sense. Sure, no, I can talk about it. Part of the fun of the job is having a collegial relationship, and part of the collegial relationship is working with people who you've enjoyed working with before. So you sort of have to push yourself as a producer, particularly at an institutional theater, to try to give other people a chance to direct. And the flip side is exactly what David and Marty said really well. You, you somehow, as a director, you have to get on the radar screen in some way uh, you know, I see a lot of theater. Uh, we do a lot of play readings. There are a lot of opportunities for directors to come in um, and do a play reading and see how it goes. But I'm not going to hire somebody whose work I've never seen in, in my life. You know, unfortunately, one of the problems when you there are many benefits of being at a theater that gets larger, like Roundabout. But one of the problems is that even the small productions, quote unquote, like The Dazzle, which David just did at our second stage. It's a million dollar production, so you're not going <laughs> to. So, you know, you, you and, and there is, um, and you all know this, I'm sure. I certainly feel this from a producer standpoint. You know, there is something other than talent that comes, goes into being a good director. Part of it, of course, is talent, but part of it is being able to be captain of the ship. And that takes a level of maturity, which some people have at 28, and some people have at 34, and some people never have. Um, but, but you know, you do have to, very few people can go from, even if they have the amazing raw talent, very few people can go from graduate school to doing, you know, a main stage production at Lincoln Center because there is a process of maturity and understanding how to deal with all the different components and with the talent and deal under the unbelievable pressure that everybody's under at that level that comes with a certain amount of experience. So, you know, for theaters like ours, we're never going to hire somebody fresh out of school, but on the other hand, we do try to 
see people, and it's, it, it's tough because, as I said, and I know it's frustrating on the other side, human nature is such that you tend to, I mean, I love working with David, and I love his work, so why shouldn't I hire David, you know? And you really sort of... That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you and good night. <laughs> Go home, Wally. <I'll> <laughs> 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 Um, yeah, I mean, look, I haven't been doing it nearly as long as everyone here. To, uh, but I guess when we, you know, when the dozen shows that we've done up to this point, what we try to do when we look for a director is find someone, first of all, that we trust. Sounds kind of obvious, but uh, someone whom we get along with, someone who we can have a conversation with, who is open to the producer, director, relationship, you know, when you're talking about money, you know, from, from my standpoint, if we don't make money, my business stops, so I have to make sure that the director will direct the show that will make money. Sounds crass, maybe, but it's, it's sort of the, the cycle that, <laughs> that makes it go around. So, you know, for example, uh, with Durantown, John Rando, uh, John had never directed a major musical before, but no one wanted to direct here in town. So, <laughs> but I had known John for a long time, and I knew his sensibility. And um, I thought, aha, this, it, it felt like the perfect marriage uh, of material of the authors and a director. But first and foremost, I, I trusted John, and I felt like he would bring an integrity and a, uh, a sense of humor, and a and he would. You know, work his ass off for the two years that it took to make the show happen. Uh, we're doing another show now, Debbie Does Dallas. Again, a weird title, strange material. You know, maybe David would love to do Debbie Does Dallas, but probably not. I mean, because it's, it's going to take a lot of time. It's going to. Well, I like the source material. Yes, of course. <laughs> but, uh, but, we found, but we found it an undiscovered talent, I hope. You know, a, a young woman who we've been tracking for a couple of years in her 20s, but she's super smart. She's got a, a really unique point of view. Uh, she's someone that we enjoy working with, who is uh, up for the give and take of a producer-director relationship, and she got it. She got the material, and uh, so that's, I mean, the how of getting her to do it was she wanted to do it and was willing to put in the time and the energy uh, so that we could actually do it in a commercial venue. Yeah, very <laughs> Robert, since you've directed and been hired, but also have done some hiring, maybe you can expand on this a bit? Well, I think everybody's really covered pretty much what happens when you have to hire a director, especially when you are putting a million dollars plus in. You really have to have somebody that you feel confident with. But one thing we haven't touched on, which I think is kind of interesting, is hiring a choreographer, because um, there's much more leeway there. You see someone's work somewhere, it can be in the smallest venue, but you like their creativity, and you're much more willing to take a chance in a larger venue with them, and that's what happened, in fact, to Susan Stroman. She, um, the first big show she ever did were at the paper mill, and, uh, of course, we fell in love with her, and we would still have her there, if we didn't take her instead. But, as a result of her doing the work at the paper mill, her work was seen there, and then Hal Prince was hiring her, and she, she got hired for Crazy Few, and, and that made a very quick transition for her. Um, a couple of years ago, we did a production of Pippin, and we had three choreographers do presentations for us because we really wanted to come up with a new 
vocabulary for it to move away from the Fosse choreography and go in another direction. And one of those choreographers was Rob Ashford. And uh, because of his presentation, he got the job. And then that job, he did such a good job with that, it led to him getting uh, more New York, New York exposure and periods winning the Tony Award this year. So I think the, for choreographers, getting your work seen, even in a presentation, in a, in a, a program like SSDC does, where you can uh, have seven choreographers showing their work, a lot of times from those very things, you, you will get hired or you'll get put on a new project or get, get you know, brought in because you have a fresh voice, you have an interesting take, you can tell a story well with the number. There are lots of ways that I think you can show yourself off more. The direct meeting is much more complicated because you do have to captain the ship and uh, you have to feel confident that you're going to be able to take a show in five days and get it up there and it's going to go smoothly and there are a lot more things involved. So the experience is a big factor. Can I add one thing to that? We, we, uh, I, was walk, I was walking through 890 Broadway one day, and there was Angelo Del Rossi. And he said, uh, we're going to run this one number from Sayonara, and you have to come in here, and you have to see this number. And he dragged me into the rehearsal studio, and I saw that number with the drums. The, yeah. um, and I said, who did this? And he said, that girl over there. And that's how she got hired, because in spite of one that number in the rehearsal. The and that was her first job outside of paper. And you just have me walking through? Yes. <laughs> so do your work. Just work somewhere, somewhere, and find out who's in the hall. See who's by. There's a tip. Beth, maybe you can help us a little bit more if once this person is hired um, and money is raised and are ready to go forward, whether it be in an institutional setting or a commercial setting, there is still a great deal at stake. What, can you talk a little bit about the relationship between the producer and the director? This is someone that you trust, you've hired, and now you're moving on this journey together. How do you work together? Well, since we're talking about Stroh, why don't, why don't we back up to crazy? Since we seem to all be talking about Stroh at the moment, I'll back up to crazy for you. We went, you still can't hear me. Okay, too much of a southern accent, I guess. Um, we, we were talking about Stroh, obviously, here, so I thought I'd begin with crazy for you. Go back to the, now it's ten years ago. Um, with with uh, Mike Ockrent, Roger Horchow had come to me with the notion of doing a revival of Girl Crazy. And we um, determined that we wanted to do something totally new with it, and the Gershwins gave us their blessing. And as Marty was saying about when you when you think in the commercial theater, and Mike, when you in the commercial theater, when you're thinking of hiring a director, normally it's based on your experience of a director's work, and obviously that's the catch-22. And we'll back up about that a little later, but. Um, I had seen Mike's work, um, both plays and musicals, but me and my girl really was the one that caused us to go to him for um, Crazy For You. And then it was the question of the choreographer. We knew that Mike had all the skills to captain the ship and was just one of the finest guys um, around. And as you probably know, we lost him to leukemia a few years ago. Um, a huge loss to all of us on, on many levels, not just directing to the stage. And he wanted a choreographer primarily who 
was able to both deliver the tap numbers that we knew we had to have, but who had a tremendous sense of humor and imagination. So we went to see, Mike and I went to see Kander and Ebb um, downtown. We also went to see Liza Minnelli's show at Radio City. And the minute, um, I guess it was another drum number. What, what, what drum the number? The same. The same drum number. That's the same drum number. So she had, she, as, as Stroh does, she wanted to use character dancers. And she had, I don't, know, I don't know how many of you all saw that show at Radio City, but she had women of all different, and this was 91, um, women of all different sizes and shapes in this unbelievable drum number up on the stage, sharing, sharing um, beating on this huge drum and choreographed perfectly around it. And it was, it was both heartwarming and imaginative and, and fa fabulous. And it made you laugh as well. So Mike turned to me and said, this is the, this is the woman, let's meet with her. So we met with her. And um, that was a very blessed project because of the creative team and the, and the, the happy melding of um, minds about how to approach this this project. Um, we, Paul Gimignani joined us very quickly as the music director and Robin Wagner as the, as the designer and we had Ken Ludwig doing this book for, for us. And it came together in six months time um, from the time we hired everybody. We were out of town in Washington. So it, for me, um, because this was the first project that I'd actually done um, with a single partner. Oh, most most commercial projects you end up with many many collaborators. I've been involved with the Secret Garden before that, and um, Into the Woods, and several other musicals. But as a much mi more minor partner, to to have two producers and then this fabulous creative team that work together so beautifully, it sort of has raised the bar for me. I, I don't I don't I don't know if I've ever had as happy an experience in the theater. And that's, and that's, I think, what Mike was talking about, the ability to be in the room with people who share the love of the theater, share their passion for the theater with you. And there's a great collaboration between management, as we are known, and the creative team. It was a, it was a great experience. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Sue, can you talk a little bit about once you've hired them, then do you stay out of the way? How involved are you? Do you hand over the project and the checkbook? What do you <laughs> I have never handed over the checkbook. <laughs> um, let's see, really, again, it depends on the show. It depends on, on uh, my history with that person or those, those people. Uh, um, it depends on, the uh, again, institutionally, uh, it's not just everybody's hired to work on a play. You've got a lot of people, you've got a lot of staff that work for the, the theater, and then the, the director comes into that environment, the music director, the choreographer. You get a sense from the floor how things are going. Uh, I kind of like to pop in and out so I'm not a stranger, but I try not to impose myself uh, unless I seem to feel a need to impose myself. I, I like to stop in and say hello, how's it going, to, you know, and then I'll come in at strategic times to see the piece as it's progressing, and I like to have a little bit of distance because then I, I, can, I can bring a different perspective to it. If they've been slogging out a number for a while and they just can't figure it out, I, I like to come in 
clean to it and say, well, it shouldn't be a number, you know, but something like that. That's why you're having problems with it. But, um, and again, with a new play, it's different from, from, from a revival. And, and some of our revivals, we completely deconstruct and put back together, so it might as well be a new play. But again, it has to do with the sense I get, the relationship I've had with, with that team, and um, every show is different. You said something, and I don't ask a lot about this, it's, it's, it's interesting, especially in the institutional environment. You do have a permanent staff that is there on an ongoing basis year after year, and, and when you put together a new production with the directors and designers, et cetera, they are, most cases, being hired to come into that environment. How, how do you sort of integrate that into the institution? Well, I mean, you have to, um, it's really a question of ultimately of chemistry. There's not a lot you can do if, um, you know, they're always under pressure from us. Uh, probably the, the, the director is under the most pressure from the institution. I'm not talking about from his or her own internal artistic pressures, but from the institution to keep things like costs under control, like set and costume clause. Um, and to a certain extent, there is uh, an adversarial relationship because the director wants to do the best possible production and in a way wants as much as they can get. And the theater wants a good production but wants to do it with as little as possible financially. And to a certain extent, that tension is healthy. And sometimes that tension isn't healthy. And um, it's, it's largely, I think, uh, a function of the personalities of the individual and trying to make the artists who work at the theater uh, understand that everybody really wants the same thing. It's just that in the same way that Mike you know, said very articulately, it's irrelevant do the project if you don't end up on balance making money because then you can't afford to do anything more and that's not helping anybody, um, including directors and choreographers. It's the same thing in an institution. I mean, my job is to not lose money, not to necessarily make money, but to not lose money so that I can do seven shows next year and hire hundreds of people who work on those shows. And I feel that pressure on an almost daily basis as greatly as the director feels his or her pressure to do a good job. And so trying to communicate that sort of mutual desire to work it out together and not make it an unhealthy adversarial relationship is, is the key to having it be, you know, sort of an enjoyable experience. And part of that is the personalities of the people on your staff, and hopefully your people on your staff are, are not assholes. Um, and, um, you know, part of it, frankly, is the personality of the director. There's some people who are talented but fall for me under the life is too short category and you know somebody else <laughs> maybe, you know, um, and I don't you know I don't um, it's just not worth it for that not not just worth it it's not worth it financially but it's not also not worth it spiritually you know so um, I, I guess I would just say finally that you know to me when we have someone direct a, a play I'm handing over because my my feelings about it are very similar to what Sue just said I don't bother them a lot once the show is cast and I'm really entrusting them with a lot of responsibility, both financially and for the institution and for a lot of things. And, um, and in return, I want to feel that they feel some obligation uh, back to the institution for that. And, and as long as I feel that, it's a, 
you know, it's a nice and healthy relationship. Occasionally I haven't felt that, and I just don't want them back, and they probably feel the same way about me, you know. Um, so, but it is a constant, it is a constant struggle, I think, to make those relationships work in an environment where resources are, by definition, sort of limited. And then you play these games where you give people budgets, and are the budgets really the budgets? Or are they fake budgets? Because you know they're going to go over the budgets, and then the budget's really lower, but then they know the budget's really higher, and then they go even higher. You know, I mean, it's all these sort of games that everybody plays to try to... over-design it, though. <laughs> so you can cut it. Cut. make a whole lot of concessions. Okay, cut all this stuff. <laughs> you didn't actually want to begin with. <laughs> Trade secrets. <laughs> Marty, how does it work in the commercial world? Well, um, yeah, I, I think if you're the kind of director who just wants to come in and have somebody finance your show and be left alone, um, then I'm your worst nightmare. <laughs> um, it, it's, 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 I don't like those situations. It's, it's not fun for me. It's not why I'm in the theater. It's not why I'm doing it. Um, and uh, so I just, I tend to be. A lot of the shows I've done started with an idea of mine, and then we hired the, the creative team, the director, Ragtime, Bossing, a lot of these pieces. And, um, and so I'm there with them from the beginning, and I expect to be a part of the collaboration all the way through. And I think that, you know, I always feel that with a book writer and a composer and a lyricist and a choreographer and a director, there should be a producer in the room. I think a producer has a different viewpoint to bring to the table. Um, and I think in shaping the show, you've got to be there. And uh, once rehearsals start, um, you know, I certainly prefer working with the directors who have a liberal open-door policy and just like you to hang around and stop in whenever you want to. Um, on the other hand, through the director and choreographer putting up their first draft, I try to stay away. Uh, so at least there's some objective viewpoint once they have a first draft of the show. But, you know, then when you get into the trenches, when you have a show that needs to be fixed, you open out of town, you open someplace, and still a little more work to do. Uh, again, I think it helps to have the producer's viewpoint in the, in the room. Um, I, I, hopefully a good producer has, I always used to say this about Mike Nichols as director, but I think hopefully a good producer has a sense of the art and also has their nose in the box office. And I think you have to look at it from both, look at a show from both points of view in the commercial theater. And sometimes that's what you're bringing to the collaboration. Um, and it may sound crass, but I think it's necessary and we need it. Come on, everybody, apologize for wanting to make money. It's very expensive to be an artist. I don't understand this. You have so much quality. You're out there looking to bring income. Without the income, you're dead. I'm sorry to burst down. So everybody can feel.
commercial producer, you don't really need any skills except money, right? I mean, that's like the one qualification you need to be a producer. If you have a lot of money, you can produce a show. You can do it to varying degrees of success, but uh, you don't need to have any background in the theater. You don't have to pass a test. You just have to be able to pay for it. So I think sometimes the, the danger is uh, from, the, from the creative team versus management that there is, well, what do they really know about the process of writing a musical or directing a musical or talking to a designer? Um, but ultimately, uh, assuming that there is a uh, there is a mutual respect between the director and the producer, um, it, I look at it as it's, it's my job to allocate resources. So if we're going to produce a show for $100, we have to determine how much are we going to spend on a set and how much are we going to spend on the advertising and how much are we going to spend on actors and how many people are in the band. And that's the constant, I mean, as you were saying, that's the constant tension is uh, the producer is, a, is an actual creative participant, like, like Marty was saying, in, and must be in the room. I think it has to be, because every one of those decisions has huge ramifications. I mean, one of the constant fights I had with John Rando, and it wasn't a fight, it was just a, you know, how many people are in the band? He wants 10, I want 5. He wants 10, I want 5. And we went back and forth on it, you know. And ultimately, we had 5. And, uh, well, we had 4 off-Broadway, and now we so I gave him one. Uh, um, but I mean, that's the, uh, and it's, yes, it's a financial decision, but ultimately it's an artistic decision, really. And if, you, if we as producers don't understand the art as well as the commerce, um, we have no basis with which to make a decision. So I think that is a, I mean, the producer is a, is a participant in the creative process and uh, and needs to be there, especially in the pre-production or in the production period. That's, that's critical. Robert, as artistic director at Paper Mill, were you in, involved? What was your involvement with the outside directors that you brought in? I was the one that was always the one involved with them. Um, and it was a fun relationship, because I think one of the most important parts, not really when you're in rehearsal and right before you open, it's really all the pre-production in regional theater because you've got to have everything worked out because there's, you can't build new sets two days before you open and you can't throw out costumes. You just can't afford to do that. So the pre-production period at the time where I found some, some directors come in with a lot of information. Some don't come in with much. And, you, and so the months ahead, you have to encourage them to really formulate their production um, well in advance so that you can have it really figured out. And you have to be right there along with them because suddenly you go, well, you really haven't figured out this transition. You have two big sets following one another, and you know it's not going to work. So we have to work this out. You have to really understand the show from the creative point of view as the producer, artistic director person, along with the director, and help them get all of that prepared so that when the physical production is bought and paid for for $350,000 or whatever it might be, it's all going to work when it gets in the theater. But by the same token, on the other side, I've been a director in some situations in theaters where you really don't even see the producer until um, practically the dress rehearsal in the theater. And I think that's a terrible relationship. And I think as a director, you need to encourage a relationship with your producer, whatever level you're working on, and try to get them to understand what's happening. Because when they come in that late, and if they're not happy about something, or they're not really on your wavelength, it's very hard to form a relationship at that point. 
And I think it's a two-way street. Everybody has to work very hard from both sides to form a creative relationship that understands what the show wants to be and how it's going to be put together uh, financially. And it starts right at the beginning. It starts way back as soon as you get the job. David, what about, I mean, I like, I mean, Todd was talking about it being a, a, a tension or a discipline, but clearly that dynamic is a very important part of the process. Yeah, I mean, I think, I was, I was listening to everyone talk, and I realized what's interesting about this panel, not including me, because I'm, I'm the only director, these are all producers who want their shows to make money, but want to make money by doing interesting work. So once you start with that, uh, and you realize that that's who you're working for, then there's, you would be foolish not to listen, because it, this isn't your enemy. This isn't someone who is saying, I don't care about what you think, or I don't understand this play anyway, I just think it's going to make money, or I think I can make it make money if I fuck it up. You know, this, I think I would avoid those producers. I mean, if I, if I thought someone really just understood money and didn't understand what the show was, I wouldn't work with them. Um, but once you're in the room with the right kind of producer, I think it's, it's an asset. It's, it's someone who will come in, uh, as Sue was saying, and just say, you know, the reason this number doesn't work is because it stinks. Just cut the number, you know, put it out of its misery. And you might have spent another three days, you know, with the choreographer, with the dance arranger, moving the pile of shit around and relighting the pile of shit until someone came in and said, it's a pile of shit, get it out of the show. So, I would, I would, there's nothing Todd could possibly say to me that I wouldn't listen. Uh, we work together enough, and I, and I admire him, and I trust him, and I'm really happy to hear what he has to say. It doesn't mean that I will always agree, and it doesn't mean that we might not, you know, have a conversation about it. I mean, I, I was really lucky. The first musical I directed was produced by Joseph Pat, and I was like a kid. I was like 26, and he, after the first preview, he came backstage, and he screamed, you and I remember thinking, well, this is my moment of truth. What do I do? do I, and I just sort of said, shut the fuck up, that number had to go. And I sort of like, I, I, I found this thing, and then we sort of screamed at each other, and, and he said, boo boo up, and he hugged me. And, I would rather hit the match with a producer. I would rather a producer have a point of view than just simply kind of give me their fear, their fear about money, their fear about what people are saying. If a producer comes in and says, I don't like this number, I don't like this, the way you stage this, why are they so far upstage? That's interesting because, you know, when you have an idea, you have, you have thesis and you have antithesis and then you get a synthesis and that's the best thing in the world. So a good producer will help you do your work better. Um, these are all good producers, so you know if you're lucky enough to work with them, you will find that. And I would just say avoid the other ones. You know, if you get in a room with someone, and, and, and you know, if you get in a room and you're talking about the show, and they see a different show, you can't do that show. Can I say something about that? Sure. You know, I think an important part of a collaboration is that um, we're all going to be forced to say no, and no is something that people don't like to hear. And I think, you know, producers always get in situations where they have to say no to the director, and the director gets in situations where he has to say no to the designers and the choreographer. And I think you have to go in, and you have to say yes as much as possible. So that when you say no, they realize it's important, and it's coming from the right place. 
And you really have to work against your own nature. And you, you know, we all work, wake up and we have ornery days. And anybody, any, anything anybody says to us, we're going to say no. And we're going to, uh, and we're going to be grouchy and bark at people and all that. You got to throw that out of your life when you're doing the show. You have to wake up and every day you got to be in a good mood, and you got to go in hoping to say yes to everything. And it's the only way no is effective. And if you could do that, and and you got to say yes to the little things. You know, to me, billing has always been a silly issue. Yes, whatever the billing thing has to be. Um, and anything you can give the creative people, uh, yes. And then when it gets down to the money issues where you have to keep the show in shape and the times you have to say no, no means something. Beth, do you have anything you would like to add before we open it up for questions? I'm assuming that everyone's talking about the directing program. Talk to us, please! Here you go, Sorry. Um, I was. <laughs> I had hoped that she would that um, Barbara would address this. I don't know if every, everyone knows about the programs like at New York Theater Workshop, the directing programs there, or at the Drama League. Have these been discussed? Where where there there are grants at several of the not-for-profit organizations in the city where you can have directorial apprenticeships. And you know, I'm backing up to trying to get get your work seen or or, or have collaborators. And obviously, another one. I have several young directors who brought me work just through sheer persistence, and they have a group of collaborators with whom they work, playwrights and other um, young young people. I call them with you know great um, talent that have also not had breakthroughs. And and if. If you are, you know, a part of a community, um, then more than likely your work will get seen. And also, if you're persistent, I mean, you have to be absolutely convinced of your own potential and talent and um, knock on our doors. I mean, that's that's obviously one one of the ways that that many people do get that break. Um, what, what Marty was talking about and. Um, I think what I was appalled to hear that you have producers that don't show up until that. That's called, I think Michael David calls that producing by catering, yep. <laughs> and, and that's that's certainly not. Um, I think probably the, the producers that you see working again and again and again in the theater, they do this because not only do they have the same goals as the directors and choreographers and creative team um, they work with, which is to do the best show that we can possibly do, but because they like the engagement. They like to be in, involved in that process, that that's really what they love to do. Um, I was an archaeologist, and in archaeology, if everyone doesn't work together, you don't uncover that civilization. You have to uncover layer after layer of that stratigraphy. And if something's wrong with a particular um, interpretation of a level, it's usually because something is out of place in that in that stratigraphic level from an earlier time or a later time. And I think of, of working in the theater in the same way. We have to all work together to make to make sense of this of this form of this um, artifact of civilization that we're creating every day, and we have to work together, collaborate, and 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 try to understand the needs and goals of each other. And producers' goals aren't so different from from those of directors and choreographers. It's to get that show on. Thanks, Elizabeth. That was great. Now we'll open it up for some questions. Uh, we've got about 15 minutes. Okay, right here. You. Yes. Um, what percentage of the work that you produce is done as a result of working with directors that you like to work with? Like 
who has your ear? Is it the director, more than the playwright, or more than? Well, I, I say of the six shows that we do, uh, one of them is because of a relationship with the playwright. One of them is because two of them is because of a relationship with the director. Uh, the other four come from any other kind of area. So, I mean, we have relationships with directors to say, you know, you, you're working on a new play, I hope you bring it to us first, or vice versa, I've got a project that needs a director, I want to show it to you first. Those are the best relationships, but there are also um, other ways that it happens. Great. Yes, ma'am. Um, you know, a friend of mine says the biggest shortage in, in theater now is producers. And what I'm really curious about is, um, how you got to being an archaeologist to being a producer. <laughs> <laughs> Afterwards, I don't think we have enough time. <laughs> Actually, the biggest shortage is new lyricists. I was going to say the same thing, lyricists. <laughs> <laughs> Tell her to write down some more. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Uh, this is for anyone. If you're working on a new project and it's getting near to its opening, and the producer and the director firmly disagree, and it's not a financial issue, who wins? The producer. <laughs> it's always a financial decision. That's how I look at it. So let's say there's a number and you think it's big, and it's shit. But, it's, well, but, it's a, but for me, it's a financial decision. I also don't think it comes down yeah. to sort of the moment of truth that way. I mean, you have previews, and if Mike said, I really think this number isn't working, and I think Sagnax will work better without it. I would say, let's try it once. And, you know, because he's a smart man, if he's right, he'll know he's right. And, you know, usually the, the, the best idea wins out, because we're all on the same team, ideally. So it rarely comes down to, like, we, we, have, we have to do this tonight, whether you like it or not. Or I would say to the producer, I have to, you know, cut those costumes, even though you think they're beautiful. When I was a Yale rep, this happened a lot. And did you have an ongoing did you have an ongoing relationship with that producer or did well, they come I in at the last minute? If you have a relationship, it generally doesn't happen. Yeah. Because you've already had a dialogue and you already know how to talk to each other. Yeah, I mean what David described is pretty much the way it happens with us is if if we're uneasy about something, I'm uneasy with something, I will voice that. But, but if there are really strong feelings about it, then it's like, I, I, I'd like to think I'm always right. I'm really right. I, you know, but, I, I would but like to say from a union perspective, yeah. running a union, the producer is your employer. Ultimately, he's got the last word. Well, on the other hand, it is an ongoing negotiation. Exactly. That's but if you, you, if you have to draw a line, if you have to draw a line, he hired you, he can let you go. I mean, I'm not happy to have to say this, but I don't think... I've ed ever had a show on the stage where I was happy with 100% of the moments of the show. I mean, the, a collaboration is a collaboration. You give a little and you take a little. And, uh, you know, I guess the ultimate dream is to eventually have a show where you're happy with 100% of the moments. But then yeah. it's not a collaboration. And ultimately, if only one person wins, then nobody wins. You know, I mean, and that's that's sort of the push and, and tug and the give and take and the tussle. And it's and it's easier and less threatening when you've got a, a good relationship because everybody trusts each other. And when you don't have a relationship, if you don't have a good relationship, then that's when things fall apart and it gets ugly and you think 
life is too short factor. I'm never going to go through that again. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I won't name names, but I think I've seen, I can think of several shows, you know, where you can tell there was a, there was someone who was autocratic and had way too much power, and because they had power rather than good sense, they sort of did everything that they wanted, and the show didn't come out as good. And and I and, and I can think of a, a situation in which where that was a producer, and I can think of a situation where that was a director, I can get another situation where it was an author. So I think everybody loses, I think you just said that, everyone loses if you're not listening to each other. Theater okay. is just What did Mr. Prince say last night? And then there's the 200-pound elephant who comes in. <laughs> That's right. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being here this afternoon. My name is Robert King. I'm a director. And I'm interested in the meeting that you guys have mentioned a couple times. Uh, you saw this person's work, so you gave him a call, you got together for a meeting. What happens at the meeting first, and then secondly, do you have any tips for us just in case we get that call? <laughs> you mean dress code? <laughs> red shirt. Never forget you wear a red shirt. <laughs> That's interesting because we talked a lot about having to see directors work, but ironically, I think as a director, you not only have to walk the walk, you also have to talk the talk. I mean, I sat down with George Wolf, he, he had just written this very strange musical with Aaron Sinclair, they'd come out of NYU about, I don't know, bones in, in Arizona, New Mexico, I don't know. But this 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 young man sat there and dazzled me with the way he talked about shows, and you just knew he was this guy was going to direct, and he had a sense of it. He he made you see the show while he sat in the room and spoke to you. And you know, to me, the directors I'm always the most excited about. I mean, to me, directing is all communication, and it's about being able to let your collaborators and the actors know what you want in as few words as possible and as clearly as possible. The best directors have the most clarity. Um, and so that's what you're looking for in those meetings. You're looking for someone who gives you that clarity and makes you see what they want to put on the stage. Think that's specific to a project? Yeah. Because sometimes those meetings are, I just want to get to know you, I want to meet you, I don't know who you are, versus I want to get up and talk about play. It's always easier to talk about play, you know, because there's something to hold on to. And, and when it's when it's less tangible, then you're really sort of just sort of sizing somebody up and getting a sense of whether you know who they are and what their sensibility is, and then you just file it away, whatever's left up here, so that it comes back to you at a time when you can use it. So the meetings are. But if you can steer the conversation in a meeting toward explaining why you cared about a certain project, sure, even it may not be the one that you're that, that you might be up for. But at least to, so people can see your ideas and how you feel about things and that you're a passionate person and, and really can clearly articulate yourself. That will help you a lot. And the, the work that you discuss, the things that you choose to discuss, the plays that, and musicals that are, you're passionate about really help define for that producer your particular interests and vision. And it, it, you know, it speaks everything about you, what, what it is you want to do and if you, what you express you know, what, you know, if you're interested in a particular form of theater, um, then that producer will come to you if they want to do that kind of work. You know, it's interesting. You had a Hal deal last night. I've done, I guess, five shows in the but, but Hal's genius is precision of language. You probably saw that. 
sitting in a room. He doesn't rattle on for 20 minutes when he's talking to an actor or a composer or something. In one sentence, he tells you what he wants, and you've got it, and he moves on. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, well, I was wondering if you could
I guess what you need with an assistant is someone who understands what you do, and someone who is not determined to assert themselves or prove themselves, because their job is to make my job easier. Once I know that I'm getting that, I will then organically, as I begin to trust the person, give them more to do, talk to them more. The only time it doesn't work is when I have a new assistant who is determined to show me how smart she is or he is, how determined to kind of get more involved. Can I help you more? Can I do more? Can I do more? And, and that's just irritating. And it, and it also, it, the worst thing in a rehearsal room is too many voices. Uh, everything has to go through the director, and if an assistant pipes up at the wrong time, particularly before everyone is comfortable and everyone knows how these relationships are going to work, it can be actually subtly destructive. So I'm looking for someone who just wants to make my job easier, understand what I do, and then as the relationship develops, they become more of an assistant director. But you have to start out as an assistant to the director. That's what the job begins. And someone who actually just wants to watch, because that's what I did. I assisted James Lapine and Des Mackina for two years. I just sat in a room and made their job easier, and I learned how to direct. So I'm, I don't really have any patience for anyone who isn't willing to do that. I would like to thank Todd Haynes and Michael Rigo and David Warren and Elizabeth Wilson and Robert Johansson and Susan Frost and Marty Bell. Thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.